0: Good morning. My name is Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, we're continuing a series we started a few weeks ago, ago called NDC Turns. 10. So if you're new, if you're visiting with us, this year is New Denver's 10-year anniversary, and we're going to have a big celebration in a few weeks when we celebrate uh, the 10-year anniversary of our public services. Uh, but in the month leading up to that celebration, uh, we decided to do this series to look back and to remember all of the foundational commitments, all of the things that make New Denver what New Denver is, and to look back and think about those, and to look at at how they still shape us to look forward and to consider how these foundational commitments have changed over time or shifted and where we are and where we're headed as a community. And this morning, I wanna begin by asking uh, you, asking all of us a question. Why are you here? Why why are we here? Now, Now, to be fair, this is not like an existential, like, why are we here in the universe kind of question. No, literally, why are you here this morning why are you at a church service if you're not aware this is this is denver i mean there are so many other things to do i mean for a starter you could be sleeping still you could still be in bed now, the parents are like, no, I've been up since like 5 a.m. You know, my kids woke me up. But, but even then, even if you, you're an early riser and you would have already been up by now, there's a lot of other things you could be doing. If you didn't know, there are these mountains over there. They're, they're kind of amazing. You could be camping this weekend. You could be out hiking right now. Parks, there are so many parks and amazing things to do. You could be running or exercising, riding your bike, or, or just eating brunch, I mean, think about this, this is Denver, like there's hundreds of new restaurants that open and close uh, every single week. You could probably eat at a different one every day and never keep up. So the question is, why are we here? Why did we choose to come to church this morning? Now, before you start heading to the exits, because I've talked you out of being here, um, I think there's actually a really good reason that we're all here. And I think it's a reason that we share together. Now, if you were to come up here and if we were to ask you one by one, why are you here this morning? There'd be a lot of different reasons, but I think there's a common reason that's underneath it for all of us, a common reason that would tie all of those individual reasons we might give together. And it's this, I think underneath all of our motivations for getting up on a Sunday morning and coming to church is a simple desire. It's a desire for our life to be better in some way. We, we want our life to be better, richer, more purposeful, more meaningful. We want to be better. I want to be better. You want to be a better person. We want to feel like our life has some sort of purpose and meaning beyond the just every day of getting up and going to work or going to school, coming home, eating dinner, watching Netflix, going out with friends on the weekend, hiking, Lather, rinse, repeat. We just do the same things over and over. We want to find some purpose and meaning in all of that, in the life that we live. We want to be better in our relationships, better husbands and wives, better fathers and mothers to our kids. We, we'd like to not screw our kids up, if possible. We want to know how to make better decisions and how to navigate the complexities, the ups and downs, the difficult things, and the joyous things of life. I think that's why most people come to any religious system, but certainly to church, to a Christian church. I think that's why all of us are here. The reason, one of the reasons that's, that's there underneath it for all of us, we come with universal hopes and desires that our life might be better and that we might be able to be better people. And here's the good news. I believe that that is totally possible. I believe that that is absolutely 100% possible. And I have had that experience in my life. And many of you could come up here and you could stand on this stage and you could talk about how your faith has positively impacted your life. How you have experienced a better, richer, more fulfilling life because of your faith. But let's be honest, that's not true for everybody, is it? There's a lot of people who have tried religion or tried faith and they've come and they've tried it and they've left frustrated or disappointed, in fact, some of those people might say their life is worse off because of coming to church. Why is that? Why is it that some of us come and we have such a positive experience and our lives are changed, we're changed, and others, it just doesn't happen for them? Well, again, I can't speak to the reasons that everyone experiences disappointment with church or walks away from faith. But over the years, I've met with a lot of these people and talked with people, a lot of them who've had those experiences, some of them who are even coming back because because they're still hoping. They haven't found it anywhere else. They grew up in church, and they walked away disappointed and frustrated, and now they're back, and they're just hoping that maybe things could be different this time around. And underneath all of that is a sense of disappointment, and I I can't speak to the reason that everyone experiences disappointment. Disappointment. But I think expectations, unmet expectations are always the heart at some level of our disappointment. Psychologists would tell us that that expectations are actually, unmet expectations are actually the cause of disappointment. I found this definition online, I love it. Disappointment is our reaction to an outcome that does not match up to our expectations. The greater the disparity, the greater the disappointment. That's true when it comes to our expectations about church and about religion as well. We all come here today with hopes and expectations about what being part of a church community might do for us. And some of those expectations we bring, some of those have been set by other people for us in the past. And when those expectations aren't met and we experience disappointment, many of us walk away and dismiss church and think, church is the problem. It's just not real. It's just not true. Well, today I want to talk about what I think is one of the causes that people experience this disappointment from unmet expectations within the church. And it's linked to attention to a paradox that's existed within the church since the very beginning. And the way that church leaders through time have set expectations around this tension, around this paradox, I think has led to disappointment and frustration and to many people just concluding, even if there is a God, I'm not sure church is the place that I need to go to connect with him. This morning, I want to jump right into the Bible and some verses that, that I think highlight what, this, what caused this tension and where it came from. And then I want to share a little bit about how New, New Denver has navigated this tension and how we think about it and how it affects some of the things that we do here at New Denver. So when we read through... The, the, the Bible. So we, the, the Bible's divided up. If you're new to the Bible, it's divided into two halves, the Old Testament, which is kind of the, the, the sacred scriptures of the Jewish people, and then the New Testament, which is all of the stories of Jesus's life, and lots of letters that, that come from early church leaders that talk about the tensions and the frustrations that they were experiencing as this new movement of Jesus followers that that was sort of born out of Judaism, but began to take on its own identity. It's it's all of the frustrations and the challenges and the disappointments that they were experiencing there in the first century. And one big issue that comes up over and over again, especially in the letters from Paul, who was an early leader in the church, is this issue that people get very focused on their actions or on their behaviors, what they do. And how well they follow what is laid out for them as as God's desire or God's will. What are the right things and the wrong things to do in life? This was especially true for the Jews because the Jewish people had, God had given them the law, which was full of moral commandments about the kind of people they were to be, the kind of moral choices and decisions that they were to make. But there was also lots of dietary laws and lots of communal laws that governed their life together. So there were a lot of things that they were supposed to do. And people got very, very focused on these things as a litmus test for their own identity, for their own self-worth, and for their worth before God. And Paul comes to challenge this. And, and, and this shouldn't be too surprising for us that this is a default for so many people to to think about our relationship to the divine through our actions or behavior, that there are good things and that there are bad things that we do, and those somehow together add up. That shouldn't surprise us because that's still a present reality for us. I would say for most people, for all those people who are running in the park today or out eating brunch right now, if you were to ask them if there is an afterlife or if there is a God, what's most important? They would say probably say doing good things, like being a good person. Most people would say that's kind of how it works. I was reminded of this recently. My, my sons and I started watching a show. We're kind of late to the party. The show is called The Good Place. And The Good Place is all predicated on this idea. If you're not familiar with it, take a look at this short clip from the first episode.
1: Uh, hello, everyone. And welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You were all, simply put, good people. But... How do we know that you were good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares, no one's watching. We were watching. Surprise! (laughs) Anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here, to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. Your true soulmate is here, too. That's right. Soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate. And you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place. Sponsored by... Otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're going to feel every day.
0: So what makes this show so funny is we don't, I mean, the, the, the question, the premise isn't even questioned. The premise that, you know, ultimately life is about doing good things, more good things than bad things. And what makes the show funny is the, the, the main character is actually not a good person at all. And, and the show launches down this path. I won't ruin it for you, but it launches down this path of what is good and bad and how do you, can you become A better person, but it never challenges this premise this idea that basically all of life and the afterlife is about doing more good things than you do bad things. And I think if Paul were here today, he would probably say to us something similar to what I said to my kids after we watched this because they're tortured pastors' kids who have to make who have to sit through theological conversations of watching comedies. I think he would say. There's something wrong with this picture. There's something wrong from the perspective of what Jesus told us and what we know about how, how our faith operates that tells us this just isn't right. He probably sits us down and explained something similar to what he shared in a letter in around 60 AD to the people in the church of Ephesus where he wrote this. This comes from Ephesus chapter 2. Uh, verses one through nine. He says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work, and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So what he's saying is we're all in the same boat. We have all gone off course somewhere. The good things that we did, don't overcome the bad things because the good things even are tainted. The things that we do all the time are just, there's something in us that's naturally selfish and tainted. It's, we can't help it. It's just something that's naturally in us and we're all in the same boat. It doesn't matter how many good things you do. It'll never overrule the, the negative things. There, there's, this is not an equation. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy... Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ, in order that in the coming age, in coming ages, He might show the incomparable riches. Of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. This is not of doing good things or bad things, not by works, good or bad, so that no one, he says, can boast. This is the basis of the good news of Jesus. We don't have to be better than everyone else. This is not a a cosmic competition to get into the good place. No. Paul says we've been made alive because of Jesus. Jesus's life, death, and resurrection accomplished something for us, opens up a possibility for relationship with God. And it is by our faith in Jesus that we are saved. We're all in the same boat. None of us are deserving. None of us, because of our good things, the good things we've done in our life, are going to find good standing before God. That's just a gift that he gives to us. He says that it's by grace, by grace that you've been saved. This is a gift of God, not by your actions so that no one can boast. For Paul, this is the very basis of what our faith and what the nature of following the way of Jesus is about. So Paul pushes his readers to stop focusing so much on their outward behavior and following the law, the Jewish law, regardless of how well they did it, because ultimately he says, you are accepted by God, just as you are, not as you should be, because none of us are as we should be. And that knowledge, he says, when you accept that, that gift from God, that transforms you, that love changes you. For Paul, this was central. Now, here's where the tension comes in. Here's where the paradox enters. Around the same time that Paul was writing this letter to the, the, the church in Ephesus, there was another leader in the church. In fact, Jesus' half-brother, a man named James, was leading the church in Jerusalem. So again, the church began in Jerusalem with the apostles, the first followers of Jesus, And they began to grow and some people went out like Paul and and began telling the good news about Jesus to lots of people. But the church, its center was still in Jerusalem and James was the head of the church there. And James wrote a letter as well or someone wrote it for him. We have a compiled set of teachings called the book of James, which are attributed to him. And these are things that he taught. And in that book, James says this, James chapter two, verse 14, what good is it? if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. So what's going on here? It's, it's like James is saying, look, Paul, it's all very nice for someone to say that they have faith, to say that they have, have accepted and believed that they've been, been saved by this grace that comes from God. It's all very w- nice and well to say that, but how do you know that that faith is genuine? How do you know that that's true unless someone actually acts on it? What's actually important are actions, And so what's going on here? Are these two men disagreeing? Have we discovered a contradiction in the Bible? Is this the Bible contradicting itself? Many people have thought so over time. Many people come to these verses and say, look, here, two leaders in the early church couldn't even agree what what this religion is all about. And it's true that at first glance, it appears we have two contradictory perspectives. And this has led lots of people to pit Paul and James against one another. And I have this diagram that I think kind of shows what happens when we do that. They put faith on one end of a spectrum and actions on the other. And it's as if we have to choose one or the other. Paul is on one side saying, faith is what saves us, not actions. And it's all in a reaction against like the dangers of... of of legalism and judgmentalism on one side. That's what he's reacting against is that you can get so focused on your actions that you lose sight of the the fact that really it is just a gift. Faith is just a gift and we are transformed by God's grace. But the flip side of that, James would say is faith without action is dead and the pendulum can swing that way. Pendulum swinging away from a a kind of a dead faith or hypocrisy, people saying, hey, I really believe that we should feed and clothe the poor. Brother, be warm and well-fed, but they don't actually do anything about the people around them who are hurting, who are poor. And over time, people have set up this dichotomy, this, this difference and set Paul and James against one another. And I think this is where some of the unmet expectations come for because people, some of you in this room maybe have come to churches that have said, you know what, it's all about faith. You just need to believe. And if you believe, your life will be transformed. If you believe strongly enough that Jesus Christ died for you, that's enough. That's enough. That's enough. God will transform you. And then nothing happened in your life. Nothing really changed. You believed as hard as you could, but nothing really changed. Others of you, maybe you went to a church where where they were really action-oriented. They said, you know what? The church exists to be the good news in the world, and we've got to get out there, and we've got to to end homelessness and poverty. We've got to care about all of the recycling and kind of care for creation care. We have to fix all these things. And after a while, you just were exhausted because all it was was about the things that you were doing. And I think that this is a a false dichotomy, a false choice, an either or that we don't have to make. Because I think the Bible teaches, and even Paul and James, as you read more, what you begin to understand is they're not on, on two sides of the same coin. They're not pulling against one another. They're actually saying the same thing, working for the same thing. And in New Denver, we think that following Jesus requires us to hold on to both of these things, this paradox of faith and belief along with actions. We've got another diagram of what that could look like, where beliefs and actions are not set against one another, but they're set together, connected to one another. And, and of course, there are people who have no belief in anything, and they don't really do anything about it. They're lost in life. They're apathetic indifferent, they don't really care. But at some point or another, some point or another, that becomes unsatisfying. And they begin to ask questions. And they can begin to move in one of two directions, towards believing in something or towards getting busy and, and acting. A lot of times people move towards the action side of things. And that's why I think that self-help is a multi-billion dollar industry. And there are a lot of self-help oriented churches that that feed that, but that by itself Will ultimately lead to legalism, judgmentalism, and burnout. Actions without faith underpinning it, without understanding that that really transformation is a gift from God, is not sustainable. Other people find their way into more faith oriented places where they're told that you just need to believe, you just need to have enough faith. If you just have enough faith, you can be changed, you can be transformed. But James would say, this is dead faith. If you're not actually doing something, then you're hypocritical. And I'll be honest, there's a lot of that, particularly in our political world right now, where people are making choices and decisions that seem totally counter to the foundational beliefs of Christianity. And they're doing it for pragmatic reasons. But eventually... If we really want to experience true transformation and growth, we have to embrace the tension of these two things, that faith and work, faith and, and actions, beliefs and actions have to go together. We have to wrestle with those things. And sometimes faith or belief precedes action. We can come to the Bible and read something that challenges what we believe about life, and it's challenging. And we choose to step in obedience and, and we begin to experience that transformation and change. But sometimes obedience comes before the faith. It's really hard to believe when Jesus says, hey, you know what? It's better if you, if you live a life where you forgive your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's hard to believe. But, but if you start taking steps to actually do that, you may begin to find that, that that's actually true. For, for others, you may begin to read in the Bible that the generosity, that, that it's better to give than to receive. And you may find that you, you're challenged with that, but you begin to take steps and put that into practice. And that's attention. And we believe at New Denver that that is where growth happens best. With belief and action working together to create transformation and our change, and change in our lives. So how do we put this perspective? This is the way we've always thought that Christianity works best. This is the way that we believe the Bible teaches us to live. So how do we put that into action at New Denver? Our vision here is new lives, new Denver, new world. And all that means is at the heart of what we wanna be about as a church is transformation. The heart of what we wanna be about is transformation. This transformation that we believe comes from God. And it begins with personal transformation, new lives, that it is possible It is possible for you to experience some of the things that you hope for, to experience a better, more purposeful life. We believe that that's possible. We believe that it is possible for you to change. Change is an actual possibility that we believe in. And that as you begin to change and as your behaviors begin to change, guess what? That affects your relationships, your marriages, your families, your workplaces, that new Denver will begin To become a reality, our city will change. And ultimately, we believe that this is how God changes the world, through people, through communities of people, living according to his truth, believing it and putting it into action. And over the last 10 years, we've worked to define and refine how we go about making that vision a reality. For us and for all of you, how do we put those things into practice? And and the, the, the clearest place that I can see this played out is in New Denver's core values. These are the things that we keep coming back to over and over again to guide what we do. These are the things that we look to to help us define what success looks like. How are we being successful as a church? What do we celebrate as a church? What's important to us? And so with the time that we have left, I want to go through our core values, and I want to point out along the way how each one of them has intertwined faith and actions, belief and actions together. And I want to share those with you. And each one of these has a question that goes along with it, a question that you can ask yourself, that I can ask myself, that we as a community need to ask as to whether or not these values are just values that hang on a wall or whether they're actually making their way out into reality or not. And there's no need to write these down. I'm gonna post these along with the sermon today on our website, newdenver.org. You can find all of these here. So no need to write them down. But I'm gonna go through them quickly, share what the value is, and then the question. The first value core value in New Denver is the scripture. We believe that the Bible is not just a book of do's and don'ts. It's a grand narrative of God's creative and redemptive work in history. And it summons us to find ourselves in God's story and to live out the purposes for which he made us. The question is, are we ordering our lives around the purposes of God as revealed in scripture? We believe that the Bible is a divinely inspired book the words of God spoken through the words of men and that it gives us an insight into what is true and what is real and what is trustworthy in life. But it's not enough to go to the Bible and ask, do we believe it? Without saying, what will we do about it? So this question calls us to ask, are we engaging with the truth of scripture and are we seeking to put those things in practice and to orient our lives around it? The next value is the value of mission. God's mission for renewing and restoring our world takes place when we share his love with others. Specifically, we, we are called to share the love of Jesus in word and deed with those in our spheres of influence, with the poor and the marginalized in our city, and with those around the world who have never heard the good news of Jesus Christ. The question, are we reaching out in mission to love the lost, the least, and the last? This Question, this value calls us out. This is not a country club. This is not just about what happens in this room and in our D groups and in our little community. God has a grander plan that he has invited us to be a part of. Mission calls us out into the world to bring the love of God in word and deed to those to whom God has given us, those who are in our spheres of influence. And the question is, are we actually going out? Are we engaging in mission with him? Third value is community, <clears throat> which says this We were made to experience community with others. Only through intentional relationships characterized by encouragement, authenticity, and sacrifice will we fully experience transformation in our lives the question are we cultivating authentic community with others we believe that human beings and science is teaching us this right like we're communal beings we were made to be in relationship with other people there is something wrong something that that terribly goes wrong with us as human beings when we live in isolation but it's not enough to say that we believe that's true and not spend time cultivating relationships with actual real people in the real world which is difficult sometimes because people are the worst. We're terrible. They're hard to live with, right? Church would be great if it wasn't for the people, but we're hard to live with. The next one, practices. Practices, The practices, rhythms, and habits of our lives shape what we love, worship, and value. In each season of our lives, God uses intentional practices to form us into the kinds of people who follow Jesus and live out his kingdom purposes. The question, are we pursuing practices that form us into a community of Jesus followers? Neuroscience is giving us so much insight into the reality we are all just a collection of habits. As human beings, most of what we do in life, we don't even think about they're just well-formed habits that have, been, that, have, that have been just laid down throughout our life and we don't even have to think about them. What we think here at New Denver is we can actually harness that reality to say transformation and change can take place over time with small choices and small decisions as we commit ourselves to practices or habits or disciplines that help us to move towards God. God uses these things to transform us day by day, choice by choice. And lastly, presence. Presence. God is at work in every place, relationship and circumstance we find ourselves in. But busyness and distractions often fill our lives. We partner best with God when we are fully present to the people and opportunities around us and the voice of the Spirit is leading us. Are we present to the Spirit's work in our lives? In an increasingly disconnected disembodied, technology-oriented world, this may be more important than ever. That in our time, presence, being physically, bodily present with people that God has given us to, with our families, with our friends, with our coworkers, is more important to ever. And that's how God does his work. That's how God's love is shared through us, through tangible, physical, human experience with other people. Now, this list of five values is not perfect, it's probably not even permanent. We've already changed it once. We used to have seven values, and then we combined them together, and we made five a few years ago. So it's not, it's not perfect, and it's not permanent. But it is what orders and defines the way that we think about how do we take these, these two dynamics of, of belief or faith and actions and put them together in really tangible, practical ways, and how can we celebrate where we see these things happening? Where can we celebrate how God is changing and transforming us as we put those things together and as we live out these values every single day? We are increasingly convinced that these, are, that these things are true and that if we put them into practice, God will meet us in these things, that our faith and our actions together are the place where God does his transformational work. We've wrestled with this tension of belief and action for 10 years, and I hope we never let it go. I hope as a community, we never let go of that tension or, or that struggle, because we'll wanna resolve it in one way or another and just feel at peace, like we can just do this one thing, but the other is gonna always be there pulling us. And I hope that for you, that you'll embrace this struggle and tension as well, that you'll take a look at these questions as we put them online. Take a look at the questions and ask yourself, where am I most challenged? to live these things out? Where are there places that maybe I'm struggling with my belief or where am I maybe struggling to put into practice the things that I say that I believe? Which one of these values that we hold as a community is the greatest challenge for me? I hope you'll struggle with that personally. I hope you'll struggle with that in your D groups. talk about it. And that as we struggle together, we will encourage and equip one another to continue holding that tension, that in that, God will transform us. He will meet us. He will change us. And through us, change our city and change our world. Let's pray that he would meet us in that struggle, meet us in those challenges, and help us to continue to pursue transformation, even when it's difficult. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, forgive us when we try to simplify the things that are, are just complicated. Um, faith, living out that faith, knowing how to know what's true and real and how to put it into practice is, is challenging and it's, it's a tension and we want it resolved. We want an easy answer. But your scripture doesn't make it that simple, Lord. Over and over through the stories of scripture, we're, we, we see the lives of people living in complex circumstances, struggling to know what is true and what is real. Where is God in this and how do we respond? And we're not any different, God. We, we pray for ourselves in this time. I pray for our community that, that as we struggle to discern what is true and what is real, as we, we hold the scripture in one hand and then we hold the, the newspaper and the daily events of our lives in the other and try to figure out how do these things make sense? How do we know what's true and what's real? How do we act in a way that represents you that you would meet us in that struggle and that you would change us through that struggle? <clears throat> And that we would remember that it's not about getting it right. Because of what Jesus did, we are already accepted. But you have something for each one of us. You invite us to a journey of transformation, to increasingly become the people that you created us to be, and to experience the joy, the hope, the fulfillment, the purpose, the abundant life that Jesus promised was possible here and now. Not just someplace out in the future, after this life, in the good place. The joy and abundance is available to us now. Help us to continue to hope for that. Help us to continue to struggle for that each and every day. And We pray these things through the Son, by the Spirit. Amen.